Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you. Stay there in the book of Colossians uh, in chapter 4. That's where we'll be this morning. And um, it's good to be here. It is a joy to gather together as the people of God to encourage each other, to pray together, to look to the Word of God, and to uh, really to strengthen one another as we run this race that we have together in this life. Uh, To that end, let's pray together this morning. Father, we give thanks that we can gather together as your people. And this morning, we confess that we are poor and needy. The great desire that we have to see and to know Jesus Christ and to become like him, Lord, we can't do it on our own. Much as we would encourage and seek to build each other up, this won't happen unless you fill us with your Holy Spirit, unless he comes and works among us to bring us back from sin and to repentance, unless he brings us to see Jesus Christ more clearly, unless he empowers us to love one another as you have loved us. And so we ask for that this morning. We pray that what happens here today is not attributed to a great tight-knit group of people or to working technology or to eloquence, but that you would humble us and instead we would see the power and the wisdom of God at work through your word, through the person of Christ. We ask for that to be done today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 4, uh, verses 2 through 6, and we're going to be looking at this idea of being wise in our witness. Uh, the main idea, if uh, you can see it up there, lie, uh, to live wisely in our relationships with non-believers. Um, we're going to look at that in three specific ways. But before we, we get to our text, uh, let's see, turn this one on. There we go. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the, the book uh, Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. It's a wonderful story. And it opens with the four March sisters, Meg and Joe and Beth and Amy, uh, receiving a letter from their father. He's a, a chaplain away in wartime, and these letters are special times. And so he's bringing them up to the news of the day, but he also has a special section of uh, a word to them. And this is what he writes to his daughters. He says, Give them all of my dear love and a kiss. Tell them I think of them by day, pray for them by night, and find my best comfort in their affection at all times. A year seems a very long time to wait before I see them. But remind them that while we wait, all I said to them, that they will be loving children to you, will do their duty faithfully, fight their bosom enemies bravely, and conquer themselves so beautifully that when I come back to them, I may be fonder and prouder than ever of my little women. It's... It's a warm letter, full of fatherly affection and instruction. And uh, so as the the four March sisters hear this, they begin to think of their own lives, their behavior, and they start to think of what are ways they need to change? What do they need to commit to in order to begin to live up to their father's instructions? And the theme, a theme that runs throughout the book then is they're wrestling with sacrifices and decisions about how they're going to live Christian life. We too, in the scripture, have received letters of affection from our Father, letters of instruction. 
we await the return of our Savior Jesus Christ. And those things, this expectation of the coming of Christ and the instruction that has been given to us are to shape our conduct today. They're to cause us to think, when he comes back, what will I have given my time to? What will I have done? What type of character will I have when he returns? And that helps us to set our sights on proper living today. So for some context for Colossians chapter 4, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul has been expounding on the preeminence of Christ, that he is Lord of all creation, he's made all things, he's the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, and so he is telling the Colossian church about the supremacy, the glory of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he then takes that and he says, we need to beware the philosophies of the world that would turn us away from Christ rather than to hold fast to him. Then in in chapter 3, we'll look at this a little bit more closely. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, he takes this idea of uh, that he began in chapter 2 saying that we had died with Christ and been raised with Christ. And he says, since we've been raised with Christ, our lives are hidden with him. And when he returns, we're going to appear with him in glory also. So that's in verses 1 through 4. Because of that, in verses 5 through 11, he says, we're to put to death our sinful ways, our earthly members. And then in 12 through 17, he says, we're then to put on the righteousness of Christ, the Christ-like character, and imitate him. And then in verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, he instructs us on how we should order our home in light of Christ's coming. All of this, this chapter 3 into 4, is bookended with this coming of Christ and living our lives in light of that. That same theme is going to bleed right into our text today as Paul instructs about our witness to outsiders. So the main idea here is, again, it's live wisely in our relationships with non-believers. And we're going to look at three aspects of that. That our witness should be done prayerfully, it should be done prudently, and it should be done pleasantly. So let's, uh, let's begin there with prayer. Colossians chapter 2, uh, 4 verse 2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Here in these first verses, in verse 2, when he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, he specifically has in mind praying for one another in the church. If you look in verse 3, he says, pray also for us. So in verse 2, he's saying, Colossian church, pray for one another in this way. For us, GFC, pray for one another in this way. And I'm just going to highlight those, just a few things from that section very briefly before we move on specifically to his instructions on prayer for our witness. First, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Um, Now, you see this picture of a tree up here because I like to think of it this way. Prayer is the unseen root from which the seen fruit of the Christian life comes. So what does prayer have to do with witness? What's well, the root underneath that isn't seen that compels our preaching? So a life of prayer leads to a life of preaching. Now this idea continues steadfastly. It means to occupy oneself diligently with something, to pay persistent attention to something. 
So we're to occupy ourselves diligently with prayer for one another in the church. Secondly, he says, being watchful, being watchful. We're to be alert to the many dangers and opportunities that we face in the Christian life. So in uh, Acts chapter 20, when Paul talks to the Ephesian elders, he uses the same word. He says, be alert. That's the same word. And he says, be alert for false teachers who are like fierce wolves speaking twisted things. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he tells the Thessalonians to keep awake, same word, keep awake and be sober so that they will not live like those who live in darkness and are asleep. So this idea of being watchful, looking out for danger, looking out for temptation and standing against it in prayer. We have great need to be watchful in the Christian life and especially to be watchful in prayer. And then lastly, he says that we are to be watchful with thanksgiving. Lest we become burdened with the weights of all the troubles in this age, Paul turns the, our, our attention to the attitude that we should have in our prayers, thanksgiving. We should soberly look around at the world and see the dangers that are there and pray. But we should always, by thanksgiving, keep in the forefront of our minds the power and promises of God. James Dunn writes about this. He says that the Colossians are to keep alert, not a spirit in a spirit of fear or anxiety, but with the confidence and assurance that their resources in Christ are more than equal to the potential challenges. So this is kind of like the general call to prayer. Pray for one another. This is the root that strengthens our tree to bear fruit when it comes to the Christian life. Look then at verses three and four. And Paul is going to specifically give some instructions on how we pray concerning our witness for the gospel, for evangelism. Uh, He says specifically, at the same time, pray also for us. This, uh, when he says us, I think he pretty clearly does mean he means himself and Timothy. uh, At the start in chapter 1, verse 1, they're the ones writing this letter, but I think he also includes a bunch of other co-laborers in the gospel like Aristarchus and Mark and Justice and Epaphras that he uh, lists in verse 10 of this chapter and following. Just briefly here, we, each of us individually, should specifically be praying for people who are committing themselves to the gospel. Some people are called to dedicate their lives to gospel labor. We think of missionaries or pastors or church planters or disciple makers We should each have people that we are supporting in prayer for their work of ministry. And then he's going to give these instructions. What can we pray for them? Now, we should have that specifically in mind, but these things are also just as applicable for us to pray for one another as we seek to be faithful and witness in our day-to-day routines. So what does he ask them to pray for? He says, pray that God may open a door to us for the word that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. The idea here of an open door is that of an opportunity. A door for the word, is it's, an, it's an opportunity for effective witness for the gospel. So we should be continually praying and asking the Lord for opportunities for witness, right? We can pray, Lord, would you provide an opportunity to talk to this neighbor about Christ? We can pray that for each other. Lord, would you provide a a conversation for this sister to talk to that classmate about the gospel? 
Um, as an example here, I, I've mentioned before, uh, there was a neighbor we had back in St. Charles before we moved uh, that we had begun helping just around her uh, apartment. We had begun sharing the gospel with her. Uh, she had to move away to a, a housing complex. We moved away down to Sugar Grove, but we've been in touch with her still. Um, and we've been helping her, sharing the gospel more with her. Over the last couple months, just got very busy at home, things going on. And several weeks ago, I just was convicted. I was going, Lord, I really need to call her again. I really need to reach out. But it seems just so crazy right now. I just, I don't see how this is going to work. Would you please open a door, an opportunity for the gospel? And I know many of you here have been praying for that as well. Well, in answer to prayer, uh, my check engine light came on in my van. So thank you all for praying. You may please stop praying now. Um, so the way that it all worked out, I ended up having to take time off of work. I took it in to get it checked out. And uh, this mechanic shop, I, I, I couldn't stay there. They didn't really have a front office. So I went to a coffee shop down the road to just read and, and work a little bit while I was waiting for them to diagnose it. While going from the garage, the mechanic's garage, to the coffee shop, I literally walked by her housing complex. I had no idea they were in the same town within a mile of each other. So he canceled my work plans, sent me to a mechanic shop, and down the road to a coffee shop. And I literally walked by her house. I turned in there, went inside. We spent an hour and a half together, catching up, opening the Bible together, reading through the scripture, praying together, and asking her to, to would she believe in Jesus Christ? She's not there yet. She is... Um, she can't get her mind around believing that she has sinned against God. And we took time in trying to talk through that. So pray for her. But do you see this? An opportunity for the gospel came through prayer. I didn't come out with this great plan of, cool, I'll use this mechanic over here and I'll be real close by. God opened a door. Pray for it, brothers and sisters. Pray for it. So we're to pray for an open door for the word. We're also then to pray for clear witness. Sorry, my uh, highlights are coming down a little bit. But he says, pray that I may make it, the mystery of Christ, clear, which is how I ought to speak. The idea in the word make it clear is it's, it's not so much that we're taking a hard concept and making it easier to understand. It's that we're making something known that wasn't known before. I know in some ways it's hard to believe for us, uh, many of us growing up in, within believing homes and church, uh, church bodies, but there are many people today, not just around the world, but here in America, that have not heard of Jesus Christ. I may have mentioned this before, but I have a friend who does ministry within public schools, and he was on a high school campus up in Elgin, I was talking with some students in the lunchroom, and he just asked one of them, he said, hey, have, uh, do you know Jesus? And they said, no, I haven't met him yet. Does he go to this school? <laughs> people don't know. Now, other people, may, they may have heard of Jesus, they know he was a historical person in Israel. He's a prophet, a good moral teacher. He died by crucifixion by the Romans. But even those details, they're not the full story. They're not the full story. Going back to, to July, whenever I taught on what is the gospel, we need to be proclaiming and explaining to people the whole gospel, the person of Christ, sin and judgment, the atoning work of Christ to pay for, for sin, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the call to call people to respond in repentance and faith. This is how we begin to explain to people, make clear to them who is this Jesus and what has he done and what is significant about this work. 
We need to make it clear. Now, this is something that doesn't just come from us proclaiming. We can share that all day. I'm explaining to my previous neighbor the work of Christ, and she's not getting it. She's not getting it. God has to be a part of this to reveal this to her. So while I was in Chicago, uh, before I, I moved out this way, before I even got married, uh, I had a coworker that I began meeting with to read through the Bible together. We were going through the Gospel of John, and we would meet, we'd pray together, we'd read a paragraph or two, I'd ask him some questions about things that I thought were helpful for us to, to move towards the gospel and conversation. Um, he would ask questions about things he didn't understand, and I just would try the best I could to explain it to help him understand the work of Christ. And uh, there was a time where several weeks went by, we hadn't gotten together, we got back together again, and I just asked him, hey, uh, what do you remember? What do you remember from what we've already talked about? So we can kind of just see where we're on, where we might need to kind of pick up. And one of the things he said after going through John 1 and into John 2 is he said, well, I remember that we were talking that Jesus is God and he came to, uh, to live among us. I never knew that Jesus was God before. And that was something, he wasn't a believer, but that was something that I rejoiced that there was clarity gained on the gospel that Jesus Christ is God. And that was a step in that direction. That's something that, Okay, we went through the text and I explained it, but I couldn't get that to him. God was at work to reveal this to him. So we need to be praying. This is not something we can fabricate. This is not something we force. We must pray for it, that God would make the mystery of Christ clear to people. So let me ask, do you set aside time regularly, daily, weekly, to pray Yes, to pray for the church body here, but to pray for the lost. Do you occupy yourself diligently with prayer? If someone got to know you, would they come away with the impression, that brother, he's really committed to prayer. That sister, she really believes prayer is important. It shows in their life. We need to commit ourselves as a people, to be diligently praying for one another and for the lost. This passage gives us a few things, right? To pray for opportunity and to pray for clarity for the gospel. But there are so many other things that the scripture would lead us towards in praying for the lost. Just as a, as a quick sampling of that, we can pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us with boldness to speak. We can pray for us to not be ashamed of the gospel, but instead to, to suffer for it for God's spirit to convict the loss, of sin, uh, the loss of sin and righteousness and judgment, for the lost eyes to no longer be blinded by the God of this age, but instead to be open to the glory of Christ in the gospel, for God to draw the lost to Jesus Christ in salvation, and for the lost to turn from their idols to the living and true God. There's so much that we can and ought to be praying for our unbelieving coworkers and family and friends that we should be praying for them regularly. So our witness should be done prayerfully. It also should be done prudently. Look at uh, verse five. Paul writes, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. The first part we have here is the command. He says, walk in wisdom. That's what he wants us to do. But then he has a second part that clarifies it, that adds something to it. He says, making the best use of the time. This is part of how we walk in wisdom. Now, when the, the New Testament 
talks about walking, it's using a metaphor that's saying, this is how you're to live your life. So when it says in 1 John 3, it says, walk in the truth. It means your life is to be marked by living according to the truth. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, when it says, walk in love, it means the way that you live should be marked by the love of God. So here, when it says, walk in wisdom, it's saying that our lives are to be carried out in such a way that it is characterized by wisdom, characterized by wisdom, particularly in our interactions with unbelievers, where it says towards outsiders. Part of the way that we do that, Paul has in mind here, is specifically recognizing and using the short time we have with the lost. This phrase here, making uh, the best use of the time, the NIV says, uh, what is, the NIV says, make the most of every opportunity. The King James Version says, redeeming the time. Uh, the idea here is something like completely buying up everything that's available. Completely buying up what's available. We're to buy up all of the time that we have for Christ. Not just saying, hey, you know what, uh, right now it's convenient. I'll go spend 15 minutes and go talk to my neighbor. But then after that, I'm going to go back inside and I'm going to get, get back onto the things that I really want to be doing. This is about living our lives for Christ, all of it. So uh, seeing each opportunity for good works and for witness and seizing hold of that. Consider Psalm 90 that we were reading earlier, Moses' reflection on uh, sin and God's judgment and really the the brevity, the shortness of man's life. Uh, In verse nine, he says, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Looking at the shortness of our life and taking that to heart allows us to live wisely in this world. Now, I had a a friend of mine a number of years ago who was uh, forming a relationship with a homeless man. And I, he, was, he was thinking through it, and he said, you know, a lot of people, they talk to a homeless person, maybe they, uh, they give them a few dollars and they give them a gospel tract, or maybe they just they tell them about Jesus and pray for them, but they don't really do anything substantive. So I want to do something different. I want this person to know that I really care for them, and I'm here, and then whenever I tell them about the gospel, then they'll know that I'm, like, I'm, I'm genuine about this. So for two years, he went out pretty regularly, just talking to him, hanging out, doing stuff, getting him food and things like that, good things. But after two years, he went out, went to the usual spot, and the man wasn't there. Looked around for him, uh, inquired, asked people about him, but never saw him again. Doesn't know what happened. Did he just move somewhere else? Did he get into trouble? Did he die? Doesn't know, just gone. So for two years of opportunity for the gospel, he deliberately chose not to take that That is not a life characterized by recognizing the shortness of our time. It's not walking in wisdom. And I don't say that to point out the failing of my friend. Far too often, I've passed up on open doors for the gospel because I've simply said, I just don't feel like it. I'm too busy. Or any number of other excuses. 
This moment of time that we live in between the resurrection and ascension of Christ and his return, it's brief. And we have to take hold of it to live to the full for him. We are to buy up this time in service to Christ. You and I don't, we don't know how long we have providentially with any person. When we're thinking of somebody praying for them, we don't know if they're going to move away, if they're going to change jobs, if they're going to die, if we're going to die. We just don't know that. But what we do know with certainty is that Jesus Christ is coming again and he will judge the living and the dead. At that time, there's not going to be any more opportunity for us to call people to repentance and faith. There's not going to be further opportunity for them to exercise repentance and faith. We have this short, meaningful window of time in our lives before Christ's return to make disciples, for us to live and be spent for the, the name of Christ. So, you take a step back, look at your life, would you say that you are taking advantage of the opportunities and relationships that God has given to you? Okay, you have relationships with people that I don't have. I have relationships with people that you don't have. God has given us opportunity for good works and for witness. Are we taking hold of those and walking in obedience to that? Take a look at your calendar. Do your schedules and plans reflect a preoccupation with your own agenda of things? Or is there space there to be ready for every good work that God brings towards you? There are some things that we just don't foresee. There are opportunities that we have that we need to be ready for. And if our schedule is so crammed with activities and events and programs, will we be ready for that? Now, we, they may be good things, but are we making the best use of the time for the sake of Christ. So our witness, it should be prayerful, it should be prudent, and it should also be done pleasantly. Look at verse six. It says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Here, like in verse five, we have a similar pattern. We have an initial command. Let your speech always be gracious. That's the, the command here. And then he gives a further clarification. He says, seasoned with salt. Now, when uh, the word here, gracious, is used with speech, it usually has the idea of being attractive or appealing. So speaking in a way that, that is appealing or attractive to, to people. Uh, and then he adds on to it, seasoned with salt as a clarification for how we're to make it appealing. Now, I think for sure, uh, here, and we see it in other texts in Scripture, the idea of making our speech appealing has to do with being respectful, being gracious and not harsh, condescending, right? It, it, it has that. First Peter 3, Peter instructs us to share our hope with others who ask with gentleness and respect. So yes, that's, that's clearly there, but I don't think that's all of it. Um, we also know from the rest of Scripture that to make our speech appealing is not to remove hard truth from it, right? So it's not saying, hey, think of what they'd be offended by and try not to mention that. So there's some parameters here. But I, I think this idea seasoned with salt helps us to get at what Paul's moving towards. Salt is used figuratively at times for wisdom. Wisdom in Colossians, it's not about our intellect or our wit. It's about Christ 
and his will. So wisdom is something that leads us to knowing God and doing his will in chapter one, verses nine and 10. Wisdom is how we warn and teach people so that they may be mature in Christ in chapter one, verse 28. And then in chapter two, verse three and four, we read that all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ so that way we wouldn't be taken captive by worldly philosophies. So how does that kind of wisdom make our speech appealing to non-believers? I think it means that Christians are to know and speak about the gospel of Christ in such a way that we show the surpassing greatness of Christ over all that the world's philosophies offer. Look at the end of verse six. It says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. When we know the power and wisdom of Christ in the gospel, it allows us to hear and address the philosophies that people are believing and show how Jesus is greater than those are. For example, we have um, many people, I'm sure you've talked to many people who are caught up with legalism. They're caught up with a works-based idea of how to get to God. So they're following laws and rules and regulations. Um, I've talked to people in various depths of this, whether Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholics, um, and it's sad to see. But as we converse with them, we need to then take the gospel and show them how Christ surpasses all that they could hope in their own works. Right? We talk to them and say, well, do you really think that following those you know, eight pillars of Islam, or do you think that doing those, all those prayers and rituals and routines, that, is that going to make you pleasing to God? Well, if you think that, you don't understand your sin. And you don't understand God's righteousness. God is a holy God and will deal justly with sin. All the good things that we do, those don't erase the fact that we have sinned and broken God's law and that he has to be just and punish that. All the good things that we do, think about this, that's just our duty. If I do good works, that's only what's expected of me. It doesn't earn me any extra merit. So we have to understand God's righteousness. But Christ, but Christ He satisfies the justice of God against our sin, pays for it in full. And not only that, he gives us his righteousness, all that you've been working for, he has done perfectly. And through faith in him, grants that to you. Praise the Lord. Do you see the glory of Christ, the surpassing worth of him in the gospel that we can show to people who are trapped in this mindset of legalism? What about people in various ideas of sexuality, the LGBTQ community? Persons in, in that community have been really immersed in a philosophy that says that their sexuality defines their, uh, really their, their person and their purpose. We need to display the truth of the gospel in a way that shows them the surpassing greatness of Christ. Okay? Right? When, when they come to it and they say, no, 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 there's all sorts of different genders and I'm the wrong gender and I should be this way and that way, you can come to them and say, no, God has made us male and female for a purpose. And if you think that you can try and escape that and do what you want to do today and be satisfied and free, that'll never happen. 
we are not made for that, and you are going to be living contrary to God's purposes, that doesn't lead to satisfaction and freedom. That leads to, to sorrow. That leads to bondage. Instead, if we turn back to God in Christ, he renews us. He remakes us in the image of him who created us so that way we can live according to that purpose, walk in true joy, walk in true fulfillment and true freedom. Christopher Yuan, uh, one of my teachers back at Moody, before he became a believer, was an active, identifying gay man for many years. And as he came to faith in Christ and began reading the Bible, uh, he says this about his own kind of journey towards coming to, uh, to Christ. He says, I recognize my primary rebellion was against my creator. In addition, it was clear from scripture that homosexuality was a sin and that I put my identity in the wrong thing. The LGBTQ community emphasizes that sexuality is the core of our identity. But God's word paints quite a different picture. My true identity is in Jesus Christ alone. Sexuality is not who you are, but how you are. And he talks about 1 Corinthians 6 and how that was such an encouragement to him where it talks about such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. And this renewing of his own understanding of who he is. And that's what we can bring to people. This is just a couple of examples. People are running towards so many different things and we can show the surpassing worth of Christ in the gospel that doesn't mean that when we say it, that they will instantly go, wow, that sounds amazing. But this is what makes our speech appealing. This is what adds savor to it. This is the only thing that we have to offer them that will lead them out of those things. Finally, last, before we, we finish here, I just want to point out this phrase over here at the end of verse 6. He says, we need to do this, have our speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that we know, uh, you may know how you ought to answer each person. Each person. There is, um, as we begin into witness with people, um, I know there's a lot of different things out there. There's, you know, like evangelism explosion, the Romans road, things that kind of help us get started to talking with people, right? It gives us kind of an idea of what to expect, uh, what things that we should say to people. Um, there's just a caution here. We don't want to get caught up in the cookie cutter problem where we take those things, here's these five verses that I walk people through or here's this question and then they answer and I ask another question and then we get over here to the gospel. Helps us get started, but we shouldn't stay there because it doesn't really allow us to listen to people, their concerns, their, uh, their issues, their sins, their need for the gospel and respond to them properly. Uh, instead, we should... Think of those things as a roadmap, right? Where if it's, a, if it's a script or a cookie cutter, we're just trying to do the same thing over and over and over again. But if it's a roadmap, we can take a detour. We can hear their question or their concern. We can go down that road. Great, let's talk about that. But then I know the landmarks of a gospel conversation that I can say, okay, we've gone down that road. Let's come back over this way. We need to get back on this and get back towards the gospel, and we need to talk about these things. So think of them more as a framework or as a roadmap for conversing with people. Um, back when I first started with the gospel, you know, I would go up to people and I would say, hey, can I ask you a question? What do you think happens after we die? And you know, usually they'd say, oh, I think there's a heaven or there's a hell or heaven and hell. They'd say, great, I think that too. Um, if you died tonight, do you think that you'd be good enough to go to heaven? 
And then if they said yes, we could talk about sin and God's justice and kind of go through that. If they said no, we could talk about the gospel. It's never that easy, is it? I remember on a number of occasions, but one in particular, I walked to somebody, I was talking with them and said, hey, um, what do you think happens after we die? All ready to get into this conversation. He says, well, I think we're, uh, we're reincarnated. I was like, oh, okay. I was like, um, do you think that maybe there might be a heaven and a hell? He goes, no, I don't believe those exist. Um, maybe a tiny possibility? Anything? I said, no, I don't believe in that. I said, well, thanks for talking. I'll, talk, I'll see you later. And I just I walked away <laughs> because I was so constrained by this, this script that I was following that I, I couldn't deviate. So we need to mature in our witness with people where we can hear their concerns, hear their questions, and take the gospel and apply it to them. Now, we're always going to be talking about the gospel. We're always going to be coming back. So there's this common thread, right? They need to hear the gospel. But the way that we interact with them, we can take it and say, it's going to be different if I walk up to an atheist and they say, there is no God, versus a Hindu who says, yes, I believe in gods. Right? Those are going to be different conversations. I'm going to say the same gospel, proclaim the same Christ, but it's going to look a little different. We need to mature so that we can listen to them, ask them questions, pray for them, and respond to their need for the gospel. So we're called to live wisely in our relationship with non-believers as we await Christ's return. And we do that prayerfully, we do that prudently, and we do that pleasantly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your mercy towards us. We thank you that you have called us out of darkness and into light so that we might proclaim your glories. I continue to ask and pray for this church body that you would continue to um, embolden us for the gospel. I pray that you would open up doors this week for conversations about Jesus Christ with our neighbors, with our coworkers, and that you would help us to faithfully, faithfully speak the gospel of Christ and that you would show yourself strong in this gospel, that Christ is the power and wisdom of God and that you would save out many, that you would grow our church, that you would grow your people. Yes, Lord, that we would not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, but instead share in suffering as good soldiers of Christ. And we pray for this, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Pastor Stephen. One of the beautiful things about being able to come to the Lord's table every week is we get to celebrate this great and glorious gospel that we are privileged to share. Not, not burdened to share, but privileged to share with other people. Now, I don't know about you, but perhaps while you were listening to Pastor Stephen preaching, you were thinking, Wow, I'm, I'm not sure that I could say that I'm occupied with prayer. Or perhaps I don't know that I am making the most use of the time that God has given to me. Or maybe my speech hasn't been very pleasant. <laughs> this is a time as we come to the table where we want to do a few things. 
We want to confess the ways that we have fallen short and throw ourselves once again on this great gospel to receive forgiveness for the ways that we have fallen short. This is a great time to confess these things and say, God, I recognize that I haven't been praying. I haven't been using my time the way that I should. And at the same time, we also want to celebrate what God has done through Christ, give him thanks and praise. And we want to ask that he would move in our hearts to do this work. As Pastor Stephen was staying at the end, uh, and as Paul said in, in his letter, we don't claim any sufficiency coming from us. Amen? It's God who makes us sufficient to be ministers of this new covenant, to share this gospel. So as the elements are passed, I want you to do these three things. I want you to praise God for what he has done in Christ. Thank him and praise him. Confess your sins where you've fallen short. Maybe it's something else. And ask God for the strength to live the way that he has called us to. Now, we practice open communion here at Gospel Fellowship Church, so if you're not a regular attender or member, it's okay for you to, thank you, uh, to take communion with us, but we, we do say and ask, as the scriptures teach us, you need to be a believer 